So as I mentioned, we are continuing our study today of the seven churches of Revelation, of the chapters two and three of Revelation, and we're on the sixth today, so we only got one more week in this series, and then we will be moving into the book of Matthew, which is exciting as well. <clears throat> and today is the church at Philadelphia, and I want to begin this morning by reading an excerpt from James Hamilton's commentary about a preacher named Charles Simeon. He said, Charles Simeon pastored Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years. He preached his first sermon there on November 10th, 1782. The congregation did not want him. As I read this story, you're going to find that there's a few differences between the way this church functioned and the way that we function here. They didn't get to choose their pastors at the time. Uh, for five years, they refused to allow him to be the Sunday afternoon lecturer, instead giving it to the assistant pastor they had wanted the church hierarchy to appoint over them. When that man left after five years, the church gave the lecture to another man for the next seven years, all the time refusing to allow Simeon to lecture on Sunday afternoons. Simeon responded by holding a Sunday evening service later than the afternoon lecture. People from the town began to come. The church wardens locked the doors, leaving people crowding in the street. Simeon had a locksmith open the doors, but when the wardens again locked the doors, he dropped the Sunday evening service. Only after 12 years did the church invite him to be the Sunday afternoon lecturer. But that wasn't it. On Sunday mornings, the pew holders refused to come to the church and locked their pew doors. Now there's another difference. You guys are familiar. We have these open chairs. You've seen, I'm sure, plenty of pews, but there was a time when pews looked a little different. There's a couple pictures of what things might have looked like. Not, this is not from his church, but they had these kind of boxed in pews, and so people had their personal pews, and they could lock them. And that's what they did, refusing to allow others to sit in their personal pews. So Simeon personally funded and set up seats in the aisles and nooks and corners. But the church wardens removed them, throwing them out of the building. Simeon attempted to visit members of the church, but few doors would open to him. The opposition continued for 10 years, and historical records indicate that Simeon was helped by a legal decision in 1792 to the effect that pew holders could not lock their pews and just stay away indefinitely. What sustained Charles Simeon. Well, John Piper said this, Simeon exerted his influence through sustained biblical preaching year after year. This was the central labor of his life. Simeon preached in the same pulpit for 54 years through extraordinary opposition and trials. Today, we're studying the letter to the church of Philadelphia, a church that stood faithful and strong, no matter what was thrown at them and no matter what anyone else thought, which is a good change of pace from some of the churches that we've been <laughs> studying. But it's a church that I hope we can be encouraged by and inspired by and challenged by. And I did already pray uh, before I started, so we're going to move right into Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 7. 
And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So Jesus begins this letter by identifying himself as the Holy One, which we've already talked about a little bit. And it's pretty self-explanatory. But I don't know if you've noticed how many of these letters where Christ introduces himself that they point to his divinity, right? This, this title, the Holy One, would have been, by the original audience, an understood title that was given to God in the Old Testament. One example, a couple examples, would be Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Again in Isaiah 43, 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. So this is another nod to the fact that Jesus is the Creator, the King. He is God and reminds the church of his purity. And not only is he completely pure and separate from sin, but one aspect of that is that he is completely separate from deception. He is also the true one, he says. And Christ had said previously in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to pause here for a minute because this is really an awesome thing to stop and appreciate. This reality. Because for the world, I don't know if you've noticed, but truth is complicated to the world. You know, the world has a really dysfunctional relationship with truth. And the thing most people don't realize is that everybody believes in some truths, whether they know it or not. We have been given certain things that are embedded in our nature and our instincts that have been given to us by God because we are special creatures created in his image. And so some people would say, yeah, we have this uh, moral compass that we call. But also that compass gets more and more screwed up the more we suppress God's work in our lives. And... As we move about our existence with truth, we end up in different places as human beings. So some people have rejected the idea of absolute truth altogether, right? They would say everything is relative in their eyes, even though they're still going to draw some hard lines in some places. And others have, they reject some absolute truths, but then they, they cling to others and they just kind of pick and choose the ones that they like, whichever ones they see fit, and others cling maybe to a bigger foundation of absolute truth, but they still maybe don't reject the Bible in, in every aspect, but they reject it for what it really is, the divinely inspired word of the Creator that has authority over their lives. So we end up with some people who are like, do whatever you want. I don't care. Kill babies, kill animals, be vegan. I don't care. Just do whatever you want, even though there's still some things they would care about. But then others who are like, oh, abortion is health care, but eating beef is murder. And then others, maybe like, uh, like a Jordan Peterson type person, who has these people who have a bigger foundation of critical thinking and logic, but still maybe can't for the life of them figure out what the Bible is really about. And why is that? Why can humans in, in, land in so many places with truth? Well, that's because Jesus is truth. And if you have a dysfunctional relationship with Jesus, you have a dysfunctional relationship with truth. Period. There's no way around that. 
The only people in this world without a fun- dysfunctional relationship with, with truth are those who have built their house on the rock. And we still struggle with it sometimes. <laughs> so some people reject the Bible and truth altogether, and others hold to parts of it and reject others, but they don't truly understand what Scripture really is. And then there's others that they read it, and they study it, and they attempt to understand it, but what they don't realize is that without the Holy Spirit— Without a genuine relationship where, where Jesus is the Savior and the Lord of your soul, you just can't get it. There's something missing. You might be better at Bible trivia than everybody else in the world, but it's not the light to your feet and the lamp to your path. It's not the double-edged sword that it's meant to be. There's, there will always be something missing unless you are truly surrendered to Christ and walking with the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing book. And, and so we get some people, of course there's some people who aren't going to look to God's word at all. They're going to completely ignore it. But then there's others who will look at it, and it looks like this. And you're wondering, like, if there's something wrong with your eyes. No, there's not. It looks blurry. It looks bad. Like, you can't really see what that says. And, and some people, they're only going to glance at it a, a few sentences or paragraphs very rarely on occasions. But then there's others who, who don't have Christ, and, and they'll look at this, and, and they'll stare at it meticulously, and they'll get really close, and they'll squint their eyes, and they'll try and try until their brain hurts, but they don't realize that they can't make sense of it because they don't have Christ. But then you understand and receive the gospel, and you repent of your sins, and, and things start to clear up. And as you walk in Christ and become more and more sanctified and, and the Holy Spirit leads you into more and more truth, they get clearer and clearer. Why? Is it because the text changed? No. Is it because you're reading, like, you were reading a different Bible before and now it, it's a completely different words on the page? No, it's not that. It's because you got new eyes when you were saved. And people in this world, they are craving truth. They really are. But they, if you want truth, you need Jesus. There's no way around that. According to himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And after that, he said, no one comes to the Father except through me which ties perfectly into the fact that he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. Now Isaiah 22, 22 talks about a man named Eliakim like this. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now this man, he had the keys to David's kingdom. But it was David's earthly kingdom in this case. Now Christ has the keys to the eternal Davidic kingdom, which is actually Christ's kingdom. And no one comes in except through him. And then he says in verse 8, I know your works. Uh-oh. We've seen that before. We don't, know. we don't know yet where it's going. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word 
and have not denied my name. Now there are two ideas about what this open door means. Jesus might be reassuring these people that they are true, that, that, that they are his children and that they will be with him in eternity. So this open door could be salvation itself. And he's saying, you guys are true and you are saved and no one can ever shut that door. And that would be similar to what he said to the few. If you remember the church in Sardis, mostly unbelievers, but there were a few who were true there. And he told them that he would never blot their name out of his book. So this could kind of be like that. And that interpretation of the open door would connect really well to the way that Jesus just introduced himself as the one with the key of David who shuts and no one opens and opens and no one shuts. But the other possibility is that this open door is an evangelistic and missionary opportunity, something to do with ministry. And the support for this would be other examples in the New Testament of how this phrase open door is used. Especially Paul, he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. He also said in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the Lord opened a door for me, I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find my brother Titus. Instead, I said goodbye to them and left for Macedonia. And Colossians 4, 3 and 4, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains, so that I may make it known as I should. Now, I tend to lean more towards the first interpretation, that this is more about salvation but I appreciate the, the reasoning behind both directions that people go with this. And even though I might think it's less likely that it's about a, a ministry opportunity of some sort, I still want to flesh that idea out a little. Because I love the way that Jesus says he is the one who has set this open door before them. And he makes it clear why he did that. You have kept my word and not denied my name. So if we take the route, explore the route, that it's about evangelism, ministry, uh, James Hamilton said something good about that. It seems to me, he said, that the nature of the relationship between the faithfulness in the church in Philadelphia and the open door is not one of their earning an open door, but one of the power of the word of Jesus producing an open door. That is, Jesus does not give the church an open door as a payment in response to the service they rendered by keeping his word. Rather, Jesus gives them his word, which is living and active, powerful, life-giving, opportunity-creating, and when they keep it, the word of Jesus opens doors. I like that. I like the way he put that. And it's a pretty big difference between the reality that we often find ourselves pursuing because we kind of maybe sometimes try to go about manufacturing doors ourselves. And instead of keeping our focus on Christ, keeping his word, obeying him, and letting him produce and open the doors. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that we should just sit around and, and be like, oh, we're just going to wait for Jesus to plop an open door in front of us and not do anything. Like, oh, I'm just... I'm just waiting for Jesus to set a door before me in my house while I watch TV. 
I'm just hoping that somebody hacks my TV and pops up on my screen and asks me how to follow Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when we try to put everything on our own shoulders instead of walking by faith and faithfulness to Christ. It's kind of similar to what I've talked about before and in, in when we try to make a name for ourselves instead of just letting God take care of those things. Right? I could sit around all, at my desk all week and try to figure out ways to get people to watch my sermons more on YouTube or listen to them on Spotify or whatever. And that I could try to make a name for myself or for this church, like putting together a highlight reel and sending it to scouts and things like that. But that's, we've talked about that. That is not what God wants in our lives. It's a problem when you're trying to make a name for yourself. It's not a problem when God says, hey, I want to give this to you. I want to do something. But it's also a problem when we try to manufacture results ourselves. And that's the whole attitude of like, yeah, we want people to, to come to know Christ, so what are we going to do? Well, we're going to pressure them into saying a prayer that they might not understand or mean. And we don't care as long as it gets numbers or results. And we've seen that so often in our country. We've seen it in so many events, evangelistic events that have happened throughout the, the decades. And Leslie and I have seen it plenty in Africa. You could... You got teams that go out to villages and do things like show the Jesus film and then ask the village if they want to become Christians. And a bunch of people start raising their hands, a bunch of Africans, not because they truly understand the gospel and they're ready to leave Islam and animism behind and, and repent of their sins and follow Jesus wholeheartedly, but because they see someone else raising their hand and think that's what they're supposed to do. Or they think the white people are going to give them something. Or they, they're, they're really hospitable people, so they might just be Raising their hands because they think that's what their guests want. And does that matter to some of those teams that are on their mission trip? Well, not some of them. Because they get to go home, put their numbers down, tell their church that 100 people got saved, get patted on the back, raise more money, and then go back to some other village next time. Was that an open door that Jesus set before them? I can't completely answer that question, but maybe not. If it was, then it was squandered. But sometimes, here's the thing, we don't really care whether there's an open door or not. Our attitude is like, whatever, I can bust this door down. Heck, I don't even need a door. We'll just go through the wall. Forget that. Look, we can burn the whole house down. Forget the Holy Spirit. I don't need him to reach people. I can do this on my own. But you cannot reach people without the Holy Spirit. You cannot reach people without Jesus giving an open door. We will fail miserably if we switch from being guy who walks through open doors to guy who makes doors and opens them. Jesus makes doors. He manufactures them. He opens them. He moves them and puts them before us. And our job is to walk through them. Now here's what I think. I think maybe God is dropping an open door right across the street from us. We've been talking about that. Is that a door that we made? No. Not in any way. But could it be that God is pleased with a church that has but little power? And has, but has kept his word 
and not denied his name and wants to see his kingdom glorified and grow? I think so. Could it be that we have people in our midst who have personally committed themselves to continuing evangelistic efforts in their own personal life with friends, with family, trying to even develop more relationships for that reason of expanding God's kingdom? And we just haven't seen the, the fruit that we had hoped to see, but we didn't give up. I hope you haven't given up. We didn't slow down. We didn't stop. Instead, we can actually meet discouragement and disappointment in those ways with even more zeal, more intentionality, more prayer. And then God says, I see you. I appreciate you. Here is an open door that you never could have made yourself. I think God does that. And when he does that, here's what we need to do. We, we need to walk through it. And every other open door that he sets before us as a church or before you personally. Because that's the other problem that Christians and churches get into. Like one is we try to manufacture the doors ourselves. And the other is that we completely ignore the doors that he's puts before us. I mean, how many of us could say that Jesus set an open door for some kind of ministry or, or evangelism opportunity before us and we completely walked by it? I could. I guarantee you every one of us could. Sometimes our eyes are closed. So there's plenty of them that we don't, we, we don't even have those in our minds because we don't even know that they happened because our eyes were just shut. But then there's others that we saw. We saw the open door and we stared at it. And we were like, I don't want to go through there. And that's sad. But what can we do? Well, we can just improve. We can just learn from our mistakes. And we can keep trying to improve in our awareness of the doors that Jesus sets before us and our commitment and courage to walk through them. And I love the way that Jesus reassures this church. A church that he says has but little power. Now, most people agree that what he means is that this is a church with little influence. This is uh, this not the kind of church that has made a huge mark on their city. They don't have a, a big footprint, a big facility that everybody uses as a landmark when you're giving directions around town. They don't have a lot of money, a lot of local leaders and power in their midst. They're just a faithful church with little influence, seemingly insignificant. I, we might have a few things in common with this church. They would likely be looked down on by the church growth specialists. They would be the ones being marketed to, right? How to increase baptisms by 30% in three months. How to double your website traffic in one hour. Seven church marketing strategies to retain and attract members. But this, this silly, naive, unfashionable church had, well, what was their strategy going to be? What, keeping Jesus' word and not denying his name? Pfft, like, that's going to get you anywhere. Well, Jesus said it absolutely did. It got them an open door, and that was either entrance into his eternal kingdom or an opportunity to expand his kingdom. So it's awesome either way, and praise God that he sees things differently. He didn't chastise this church for having little influence. Oh, you puny, you pathetic little church. What have you done? 
for me. No, he rewards them and encourages them for being faithful. All these churches that we've been studying, there's seven in this group of churches. Only two of them were not rebuked by Jesus. Smyrna, if you remember the faithful persecuted church, and Philadelphia, the faithful insignificant church. I titled the sermon, The Faithful Church. I had an alternate title that I was mulling around. It was going to be The Insignificant Church. But that could be a little misleading because they're not actually insignificant. Are we okay with persecution and or insignificance in this world? As long as it's paired with faithfulness, we should be. Like, who cares if the world hates us or, and this is even worse in some people's minds, if they think nothing of us, as long as Jesus knows us, we should not care. We should not care. His opinion is the only one that should matter to us. And he says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, we talked about these people that Jesus labels as the synagogue of Satan. We talked about them in the letter to Smyrna. There's a lot of connections between Smyrna and Philadelphia. They're ethnically Jewish, but they rejected Christ as the Messiah, so which puts them out of God's family, not truly children of Abraham. And Jesus says he will make them bow down at this church's feet and recognize that Jesus had loved this church. Now, that could mean that one day they would join together with them in and worshiping Jesus. And that, that could make sense if the open door is about ministry opportunity. He could be saying, hey, those people that hate you now, that persecute you now, are one day going to join you. Maybe, but I think, to me, it reads a little bit more like an acknowledgement rather than a joining in worship. We know that the Bible teaches that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to submit to Christ and worship him the way that they're meant to, but they will all recognize and acknowledge who he is. And Isaiah 60 verse 14 has in view what many of us would label the end times. I mean, we know there's not really any end times, but... You know what we're talking about when we say that, most of you. It says, The descendants of your tormentors will come and bow before you. Those who despised you will kiss your feet. They will call you the city of the Lord and Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So I think what's in view here, which, which goes more with my leaning towards the open door being about their salvation, is that this is an acknowledgment but Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We get to some juicy stuff here. Even if you don't recognize it yet. But... Uh, if you weren't aware, verse 10 here is one of the main verses that people use in support of a pre-tribulational rapture. And if those words just flew right over your head, let me explain. Uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus one day is going to come back again. 
And when he does, he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. That's what people call the millennial kingdom. So Jesus is going to come back and he's going to cast Satan off the earth for a period of time. And then he's also going to kill all of those who worship the beast. So all those who don't follow Christ and start his reign for a thousand years with his people. But before that happens, there's this seven-year period of tribulation where things get really, really bad. And for part of it, God unleashes his wrath on the world. So some people believe that all Christians who are alive when that seven-year period starts are going to be taken out of the world. And and they, they won't be here during that time. Now, and this is one of the verses that's used to support that. Now, I'm not going to go into a full teaching on the tribulation and rapture today. We're going to do that completely when we get to Matthew 24. Uh, But I am going to deal with this verse. Some people also, I should note, think that the seven churches in Revelation actually represent seven different church ages, periods of time. And they would call them dispensations. And so this church would be the one that's... uh, the period of time when the tribulation comes. Um, I don't believe that. I don't see a scripture. I don't see a biblical reason to think that way. But I will also say that there's plenty of people who still don't think these churches represent different ages that still believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And they would say that the hour of trial here is that seven-year tribulation. And we do know for sure that it is not about some hour of trial that is coming specifically to this church. That would be the easy way out. Oh, it's just about something that that church is going to go through. Well, the problem is it says it's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, interesting though, that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, when we first read it, it sounds like everybody. That, That sounds like everybody in the world. But that phrase is used multiple times in Revelation. And... Instead of meaning absolutely everyone in the world, it actually, in other places, is used to mean unbelievers who are the objects of God's wrath. Like Revelation 6.10. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Of course, they're not talking about judging and avenging blood on believers. But even more clearly, too, is Revelation 13.8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, and him there is not Christ, but the beast, Satan, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So, I should also say that, clarify, that even those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture also believe that there will be Christians on the earth during the tribulation. Now, there's going to be the rapture, but then they would say, well, there's, there's going to be these Jewish witnesses, which we won't get into all that, but also people who come to Christ during the tribulation. And so we see Jesus says, this hour of trial is coming to try those who dwell on the earth. But by the way, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth is used elsewhere in Revelation. We can deduce that the hour of trial is coming to try not absolutely everyone on the earth, but unbelievers who worship the beast. And there's no doubt that believers would face intense persecution during the tribulation. However, there comes a period of time during that seven years when God starts to pour out his wrath on the earth. Yet, when we see that happening, it is not poured out on absolutely everyone. Revelation 16, 2, 
So the first went and poured out his bowl, and that's the bowl of God's wrath, upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So, and there's more support when you look at the bowls that are poured out, that, that there's going to be these things that happen that are poured out on the earth, but they don't affect absolutely everyone, but they affect those who worship the beast. And so what I believe is that this verse is not about taking Christ's people out of the world, but instead it's about protecting and preserving them through the hour of trial. Jesus keeps us through preservation, not evacuation. Is what I believe the Bible teaches. So the hour of trial would not be the seven-year period itself, but rather the wrath of God poured out on the world during that seven-year period, meant for those who dwell on the earth, which not, doesn't literally mean every absolute person, but those who worship the beast. So we would read verse 10 like this, I will protect you from the wrath of God that is coming on the world to punish those who followed Satan. And this interpretation also fits pretty well with the priestly prayer that Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, 15. He said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus had in mind the tribulation when he prayed that prayer. Uh, there are differences, but I'm talking about just this mentality that Christ had for his followers. Because we know during the tribulation, uh, should we be here, there's going to be intense persecution from the evil one. <laughs> and we'll be, we would be protected from, from God's wrath. So there's still questions here. There always will be. Always will be. We know the tribulation hasn't happened yet. And we also know that everybody in that church of Philadelphia is dead. So they were very much protected from it <laughs> in that sense. And Jesus says he's coming soon. But we now know that that word soon is relative to his perspective, not so much ours. It's soon to him, maybe not to us or to the original audience of these letters. Soon is just a perfectly ambiguous term, isn't it? Uh, when are you coming to bed? Soon. Three hours later. Now we know that God doesn't tarry like we do, but he's patient. He's waiting on more to repent and know him. Come into his kingdom and his family. And Christ tells them to hold on, to endure. Don't give up before the finish line. And he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia had an earthquake problem. So this imagery of them being a pillar in God's temple probably had a little more oomph to it because often big, strong pillars were the only things left standing after bad earthquakes. And all of this, it, you see that it's about security, ownership. You're, you'll be an unmovable pillar in my house. You'll have my father's name, the city's name, my name. It's like there's no denying whose you are and where you belong. You are mine, and you will be with me for eternity. I love this letter. It's so good. 
It's a letter to a faithful, seemingly insignificant church. And Jesus showers them with love and encouragement and assurance. And why does he do that? He said it twice in this letter, because you have kept my word. That is so important to Christ. And so I think it's appropriate to kind of close things out today with trying to ask that question, well, how does someone keep God's word? Well, it starts by knowing it. Doesn't it? Like you're not going to be able to follow commands and principles very well that you don't know. It's like grabbing somebody out of the jungle and then putting them in a car in L.A. and saying, here, drive through the city. They're not going to know what to do. The stoplights, roundabouts, four-way stops, anything and everything. They're not going to have a clue what to do. It's going to be chaos. And that basically is the life of professing Christians who don't know God's word. And what's the excuse going to be whenever we stand before God? Well, I didn't know that's how I was supposed to live. Well, I gave you my word. It told you everything that you needed to know. But I didn't like reading it, though. I'm not, reading's not really my thing. Well, when you were living, you actually could have listened to the audiobook. Well, I was busy. Well, you weren't too busy to watch Lord of the Rings or sports or go hunting or fishing or play on your phone when you were laying in bed. Oh, but it was confusing. I didn't understand it. Yeah, that's why I I give churches and pastors. but it doesn't do anything for me. Nothing changes. Well, well, that's where you're right. Nothing did change for you, but that was not the fault of my word. Because it transformed the lives of those who truly knew me and loved me. What's our excuse going to be? Now, knowing it is great. You have to know it. You need to know it in order to keep it. But knowing it's not enough, knowing it's not the same as keeping it. Like I talked about earlier in the sermon, there's more. You can know it, but not get it. You have to believe it. But understand that it's not just believing that it's a real historical document. There's plenty of people in the world that are like, oh, the Bible is awesome. What a great book that is. But they don't really understand that it is the divinely inspired word of the creator that has authority over their life, living and active. But even belief isn't enough. Jesus, I mean, James said even the demons believe. We can know it. We can believe it. But we also have to receive it. Remember that Jesus is the word. He is the true one. And if you want to avoid a dysfunctional relationship with God's word, with the truth, then you have to avoid a dysfunctional relationship with Christ. Only those who repent and put their faith in Christ and choose to follow him can truly keep God's word. You're never going to be able to do it without that. That's how you receive new eyes. And the Holy Spirit. And then that's how you can actually get it. 
And if we as a church with but little power, seemingly in, insignificant to our world, want to stand before Christ and hear him say, good job, welcome to my kingdom, or, or, or good job, here's an open door for you to magnify my name on the earth, the path is pretty simple. Keep his word. He is the one who gets to decide whether we are significant or not. And according to him, keeping his word is of utmost importance, absolutely central to our significance. So I say that we follow in the footsteps of the church at Philadelphia and we keep his word and we don't deny his name and we wait, we let him be the one who makes the doors and opens them and sets them before us and then we walk faithfully through them, courageously. And one day we'll get to stand before him and he can say welcome right this way. That's an open door that I want every one of you to walk through with me.